All right, so I'm here with Damian Newhart. Um, thanks for coming on to South Coast Chronicles. Just the purpose of this podcast is just to know people's stories and recovery and and uh, just getting to know people. And hopefully your story inspires people. I know your story, so it's very fascinating, and that's why I asked you to come on our show. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate you having me, for sure. Absolutely. So you've been sober. Um, here, push the microphone into you a little bit more. Um, so you've been sober nine years now. Yeah, it's been nine years, January uh, 30th. And I think you and I met, like, when? 20 I, years ago? You and I met, uh, let's see, I've been sober for nine years. It was uh, six-ish, probably 15 years. 15 years ago. Yeah, it was probably five or six years in and out. And yeah. Out. yeah. I met you through Daryl, right? Yeah. And then we started going to some meetings together you and were became my, friends. And you I was were your sponsor my first, for a second. Very first sponsor I've ever had. And is your sponsor is still, is who is it now? Is it? Don. It's Don. So we have the same sponsor. Yeah. Don's yeah. been my sponsor for... Gosh, coming up on no, it'll be thirty years now. So no kidding. Yeah, wow. yeah. I met Don when I was twenty-one years old. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, he's helped me out tremendously. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. So not always the easier, softer way because he says it like it is. But um, <laughs> yeah, some of us need that. From tells yeah, tells you how how it is and what you need to hear, right? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about where you grew up, where you're from, where were you born. Uh, Back and forth between Santa Barbara and West Los Angeles. So okay. I was born in, actually born in Chatsworth, San Fernando Valley. Okay. Up in the kind of armpit of the valley up there. Um, <clears throat> lived there for, I don't know, off and on for a few years. My parents divorced very young. Uh, dad ended up in Santa Barbara. Mom remarried, uh, moved into West Los Angeles. So I kind of three to 16 back and forth between the two households between mom and dad yeah between mom and dad so you were three when they got divorced i was three when they i think three when they split up probably four or five when they got divorced they were kind of in and out for so many years it kind of all blends together um and then i ended up living with my dad for a while my mom for a while kind of back and forth between the households you an only child brothers and sisters older brother uh eight years older than me okay so kind of an only child in a sense that you know he was doing his own thing. We weren't that close at all growing okay. up. Um, I had a sister <clears throat> who passed away when she was three. Uh, she was before before I was born. Okay. Um, so my parents had the two kids, and then uh, my sister passed away, and they had me. Okay. Um, my brother and I weren't close. He was partying young. Okay. Um, first time I got loaded was by my brother. I think I was eight or nine, you know. Um, and so he was out of the house. Pretty, pretty early and off to college and uh, smoking crack in college and getting kicked out and going to jail and all kinds of crazy right. shit. So I ended up in Santa Barbara f- with my dad for a while, <clears throat> um, doing well in school, high school and whatnot, playing sports, and then uh, didn't get along with my dad for a period of time when I was about 16 and ended up running away to Mexico. So that's uh, Okay, so let me back you up a little yeah. bit. Your brother got you loaded for the first time when yeah. you were eight. Tell me that story. I don't remember it exactly. <clears throat> um, I, I remember getting loaded. Uh, he was, him and his buddies were hanging out in the living room, and they were smoking weed. And uh, he had, I remember a bong sitting next to the table. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it was at the time. And uh, they're smoking weed. And, of course, I'm the little kid hanging out there. I want to see what they're doing, what my big brother's doing. And uh, they pass me the bong, and I take a bong rip at, you know, eight years old. No idea what I was doing. Probably coughed a lot. Probably coughed a lot. Yeah. Probably threw up. I don't know. But I remember being loaded. I remember that feeling. Yeah. You know, at eight years old, whatever that was, it kind of clicked a little bit. Yeah. And uh, I didn't do anything for years after that. 
but it, it definitely planted a little seed early. Okay. So you didn't do anything for years. When's the next time you got loaded? Uh, my buddy's uh, my buddy's brother's bar mitzvah. Uh, what was I? 10, 11 maybe? Uh, drank an entire bottle of wine. Okay. And it threw up all night long. I was sleeping over at his house. We went to the bar mitzvah. Somehow some of the bottles of wine came back to the house and uh, he kind of dared me, I think, at one of those things. And I just chugged the whole bottle of wine. Uh, threw up all over his bedroom and and uh, didn't drink again for quite some time until high school. You felt like oh that wasn't great. Was not great. So it wasn't one of those times that people talk about. Oh, the first time I ever drank, I felt like I'd arrived. Not even close. Right. Yep. So didn't drink again until high school, and then did you ever have that drink where you're like, oh, this is cool, this is mine, or a memory of that? You know, <clears throat> interestingly enough, yeah, yes, with with weed mostly and yeah. then the alcohol came in kind of later in life um, high school was mostly smoking pot definitely drinking you to get the big handle of, of Jim Beam or something behind mm-hmm. the pool hall in Santa Barbara but it was smoking pot predominantly through high school um, the alcohol didn't come in until college mm-hmm. probably and then uh, kind of off to the races with that for a while through okay. college um, so at 16 you run away to Mexico yeah get back to that um, I, my dad and I were just button heads. We weren't getting along well at all, um, understandably. And he, he was, uh, found a pipe or something, you know, a weed pipe in my bedroom and we got a big blowout. And so I planned this whole thing through my head thinking I'm going to, we went to Cabo a little while before that. And I thought, well, I'm going to run away to home, run away down to Cabo, you know, take my truck. At Cabo, why not? Yeah, right? why not, right? 16 yeah. years old. If you're going to go somewhere, go to Cabo San Lucas. Um, I had a job at the time working at Char West, the little hamburger place on the pier in Santa Barbara. Um, I was the manager of Char West at 16. And uh, we part of my job is we'd lock the money in the safe every night. So I've got this whole plan in my head. I'm going <clears> to, <throat> and I executed it. I drove down to the pier at 2 o'clock in the morning popped the safe open, took out whatever cash was in there, and I, I took off down to Cabo solo by myself in my little red Ford Ranger pickup truck. Took the burger money out of the took, safe and headed to Cabo. It. Yep. And I had uh, $1,800 in my pocket, and I was convinced at 16 years old that that $1,800 was going to last me the rest of my life. <laughs> I, I was new. I was going to Cabo. Tacos are cheap. Everything down there is cheap. I said, I'll live the rest of my life. I'm good. Um, drove for three days, you know, to get down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, crashed into a cow on the way down there. Scared the shit out of me. Um, I finally made it down to Cabo and stayed with a buddy of mine who I knew down there. Ended up living there for six. So, would you just show up at this guy's house? Literally, yeah. He hey, was, I'm here. Literally, yeah. He's he's uh, he was probably in his late twenties, early thirties. Married, you know, lives in Cabo, and I had seen him. I'd met him once. Uh, three or four months before that when I was down there on a trip <clears throat> knew him a little bit through that trip but not not well and I show up at his door one day and he's looking at me like Damien what the hell are you doing here and I right. lied to him I told him I was on spring break and he asked me does your dad know you're down here and I of course told him yes uh-huh. and he said well where are you staying and I looked at him and I said well I'm staying with you Jeff can I stay at your pad <laughs> <laughs> You know, he's 16 years old. You're not yeah. putting it all together. Yeah. I'm thinking, it's why wouldn't I stay at his house? Right. He's married. His mother-in-law is coming in town. So I ended up staying with him for a couple nights. Um, 
And then the owner of the surf shop down there, I lived with him for a little while, and I bounced around between people's houses and living in my truck or somebody's station wagon or something. How long were you down there for? Six months. Holy shit. Yeah, I know. And did your parents know you were down there for six months? <laughs> no, they didn't. When I, before I left, I told everybody uh, at school that I was going to uh, Texas. So my parents thought I was in Texas. So they were looking for you in they Texas. They were looking for me in Texas. Um, and so you knew enough at 16 how to throw people off your set, yeah, right? Really, yeah, really. a sign of things to come, <laughs> right? right? Um, so I, I uh, uh, it's three weeks, I think, till they figured out where I was. Yeah, and my buddy Jeff came to me, and this is before cell phones, you know. Okay, you'd been in Cabo three weeks. I've been in Cabo three weeks. They figured it out, and <laughs> so you know, as a parent now, looking back on it, now granted, my parents weren't phenomenal parents, but as a parent thinking of my kid, you know, I got a 16 year old son right now. Right thinking of him being missing for three weeks, I'd go out of my mind. Absolutely. Um, so I put them through a little bit of a ringer. We don't think one. about that until we become parents. Like, holy shit, all the stuff I really put my parents through. Oh, man. If if one of my kids did that, yeah. I, I mean, and it, granted, we grew up in a different time, but yeah. there would be different reactions for me than there were no for question. my parents. No yeah. question. So yeah. my buddy Jeff came in, and I think I was surfing or something at one point. He said, hey, your, your dad called. He said, you're not here on spring break, are you? And I said, no. He said, well, you need to go give him a call. So I had to, I had to go to a hotel to get a, fo- a phone call yeah. out of Mexico. And I called him up, and he basically said, you know, you made your bed. Like, stay down there. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah, we, we didn't have the greatest yeah. of relationships. Um, so I stayed. You know, I spent six months down there. I worked a little bit at the surf shop and did what I needed to do to get by. Spent about six months. My brother flew down to get me, bring me back. Okay. Yeah. So your brother just shows up. Come on, let's go. Yeah, him and his wife at the time, I think it was his first wife, um, flew down. We were supposed to drive back in my truck. You know, I got a fairly new Ford Ranger, and he's such a dipshit that he didn't want to he didn't want to drive back. He wanted to fly back. Mm -hmm. So he went and drained all the oil out of my truck, drove around, burned out the engine. And mm-hmm. so we had to fly back and uh, ended up living with him for several months after that. Okay. Because my parents were kind of over it. Done with you. Yeah. So that was like your first big act of rebellion probably, right? Most definitely. And that would be the first one. Where do you think that comes from in us and like 16-year-old? Because, you know, you and I both have teenage kids and it's like there's always a little re- rebellion. But things yeah. that you did and things that I did at that age kind of took it to another level. Like, what do you think that's about? I, it's interesting. I, I think it's, you know, they talk about doing things alcoholically, right? Like, mm-hmm. we go to those extremes. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of those extremes for us are very destructive and dysfunctional. Um, I, I don't know. I think that, there, you know, there's a, gen- a genetic component to it, for sure. You know, we're yeah. all built a little differently. You know, right. we're wired differently. Um, I think that kind of extremism is is part of why we are, you know, the way we are with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. We just take everything yeah. as far as we can, yeah. you know. Yeah, absolutely. So you get back, you're living with your brother, and then you start doing good again. I mean, obviously, at some point you did because you had some success, yeah, right? Yeah, so- yeah, yeah. I uh, lived with my brother for a little while, uh, worked, interestingly enough. Uh, as a janitor cleaning banks at night, which we can get into later. But, um, <laughs> That's ironic, right? Yeah, isn't it? Uh, cleaning banks at night, or uh, did that for a while, and then ended up going back to school, high school. Got, I tried, tried to get my GED at that point. Uh, I don't remember what happened, but then I ended up moving in with my mom mm-hmm. and my stepfather, who was an orthodontist. And um, 
worked for him in his orthodontic practice. It wasn't going to school, I think 17 years old at this point. Um, worked full time, you know, doing stuff and making retainers and scheduling appointments and stuff. Did that for a few years, uh, three years. Um, moved out of there into Homerosa Beach, got a good deal with a guy I knew, I lived a place down there, rented a room from him. Stayed there for about three or four years and finally decided I wanted to go back to school. Mm-hmm. And took my GED and uh, went to El Camino College, took some community college classes. Wasn't drinking or doing any drugs throughout this period of time. You were completely sober. Completely sober. My brother had <clears throat> my brother had been through treatment up in Santa Monica, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere in this window, and I started to have an awareness of recovery and went to some, some meetings actually at 17, 18 years old, started to go to a couple young people's, young, young, young groups in uh, Hermosa Beach. Um, so I didn't do anything, yeah. nothing. And I was doing good, you know, uh, going to school, uh, working full time, and I decided I wanted to follow in my stepfather's footsteps okay. and, and go into dentistry. Okay. Um, <clears throat> did well in school, grades were really good. Uh, ended up at uh, Chapman University okay. in Orange and did all my undergraduate work there. Spent uh, three years at Chapman. Um, started smoking a lot of pot again at Chapman. Okay. Um, uh, a lot of drinking, for sure, but st- could still hold it together. Right. No question. You know, I, I'm the guy that was, I'd be at the party, and then I'd just, you know, party would end, and I'd be studying from 2 to 5 in the morning for tests. Yeah. Um, and then held it together for a while and, and left Chapman, got into dental school um, up in San Francisco, University Pacific. Uh, spent three years in dental school. Did a lot of drinking up in dental school. And a lot of golf, a lot of drinking. And... Uh, which dental school is no joke, right? I've heard dental, dental school is no joke. One of the hardest things you can do. It is. It's the first year, the first couple of years of, of dental school and medical school are exactly the same. It's mm-hmm. all just anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, all that stuff. Um, where they get different is in the next couple of years. Dentistry, the last half, you're in clinic. You know, we're mm-hmm. learning all the clinical stuff. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's tough for sure. It was it was difficult. Um, I'm lucky in that I've got a good memory and I'm pretty good at that type of stuff. Right. You know, the didactic book stuff I can handle. And then the clinical stuff I did well in, you know, yeah. I had good hands and, and did well in the clinical. So it came relatively easy to me. Um, so I did that and then uh, graduated from dental school in 2000. Uh, what was it? Yeah, 2000. And um, uh, came back to LA to work in my stepfather's practices. He had five orthodontic practices up in LA. And I ended up taking those over at one point. Um, got married in that in yeah. that time. So you period. became a dentist. Became, got married. Became a dentist. Got married. First kid. Uh, things were moving quickly at that point. And what was your drinking and drug use like at that point? No drugs whatsoever. Okay. Didn't even come up on my radar. A ton of drinking. Okay. A lot of drinking every day. Um, my ex-wife was a big drinker. Mm-hmm. Is a big drinker, and um, so I really kind of dove into that right um we all of our friends everybody you know circle everybody's looking back on it you think it's normal but everybody's drinking alcoholically everybody's getting just tossed you know five nights a week right um we ended up we were living in up in uh, beverly hills uh for a while and then we moved down to newport beach and so I was making the commute from Newport to West Los Angeles five days a week. Okay. And I'd be getting just shit-faced at night, drinking at home, 
and then jumping in the car, you know, five o'clock in the morning, driving up to LA, and my my uh, assistants would comment on my alcohol right. <laughs> smell, you know, because yeah. I'd reek like booze. Yeah. Ended up going up to work. Um, I did that for a number of years. Uh, had a couple kids, uh, two daughters at that point, and I wasn't seeing my kids. You know, I'd, I was working so much uh, that I'd come home. You know, I'd leave for work. Kids would be asleep. I'd come back, and kids would be asleep. Mm -hmm. So I decided to get rid of the practices up there and, and open a practice down in uh, Laguna Niguel just okay. to be closer to the kids. The money yeah. was great up yeah. in L.A., no question. We were doing really well, uh, very successful financially. But there were a lot of other areas of my life that were being compromised. Right. Uh, the drinking, <clears throat> drinking continued. Uh, and then there was one, I think it was uh, 2004. Five-ish opiates were kind of coming into the mm -hmm. frame a little bit in the news. You start yeah. hearing about people. Everybody start talking about you know painkillers and Vicodin and the I'd, six vital sign came yeah. out around there, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I'd never in my life taken a pain med, you know, at that yeah. point, and so I wanted to see what all the hype was about. So I, uh, you know, as a dentist, I can order pills from a catalog, mm -hmm. my license and DEA license. So I ordered a bottle of Vicodin to come into the office. <clears throat> you know, 500 pills for 50 bucks. And uh, they come to the office and I, I take one. because I wanted to see, and it was just out of curiosity. I wasn't right. trying to get loaded. And I took one and I, I, something, something clicked. Because yeah. it was four hours later, I took two more. And then four hours later, two more. And then, you know, it was just, I was off to the races at that point. From just taking one out of curiosity. Yep, that's all yeah. it was. That's all it took. Yeah, and um, that became not even thinking that was even a probably a risk at the time. No, no, totally naive and oblivious. You know, you're seeing on the news these things about opiate addiction, but it never even crossed my brain that that would apply yeah. to me. Because you're a dentist, you're in the medical field. It's like yeah, I just want to see. Yeah, like what it's else a scientific experiment. Or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and that was the beginning of the end. Right. It, was, it was, you know, it took years for me to get, you know, to where I went, but um, it just became such a big part of my life. Mm -hmm. Everything and every decision, uh, you know, everything's focused on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally everything I'm running, you know, the very successful big dental practices. I've got three kids, marriage, you know, we got the home, we got the country club, we got a nice car, like you've got it all. Right. But all I'm thinking about is, how I'm getting more pills. Right. Um, they shut down the, the, uh, the, where I was ordering from the catalog, they shut me down at one point because I was ordering so many. Um, kind of red flags were starting yeah. to come up. <clears throat> and of course, I just, you know, thinking I can get around all that stuff. Right. Mind you, it's the DEA. Like, they tend right. to track this stuff sure. pretty closely. Um, I ended up writing fraudulent prescriptions for a number of years. Um, and back then, it was easy. You just make up a name and put it on it. Go pick it up. Put it on a piece of paper and then it's nothing. pick it up. Yep. Give them your name. You didn't mm -hmm. have to show an ID. and Pay cash. You know, yeah. no, I'm sure the pharmacist kind of was hip to what was going on. But yeah. um, I did that for a few years. and So you were able to do that for a couple of years. Yeah. 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 I did that for a couple of years. And was it Vicodin? Was it? Norcos. Norcos. Yeah, Vicodin, Norcos. Yeah. Um, I, as a dentist, we can write prescriptions for those, no problem. I mean, mm -hmm. I can write them for oxys too, but that's a red flag to the pharmacist. Right. Uh, dentists, right, back then would do Norco prescriptions. Right. No problem. Um, so I'd, I'd write uh, 
uh, Norco prescriptions, and uh, I'd, I'd always mix it with an antibiotic, right, mm -hmm. to make it look legit. Mm -hmm. Throw in a little amoxicillin, and it, yeah. looks, it looks good. Um, and I did that for years, and uh, my office manager knew what I was doing, because I think I wrote her a couple scripts or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, something went on, and I fired her, uh, unrelated to this. And she said to me, she said, well, I want you to continue to pay my medical, you know, I provided full medical for my employees. She said, I want you to continue to pay my medical insurance for the next year, or I'm gonna report you to the dental board. Right. And I told her, you know, fuck you, go report me. Right. Thinking she wouldn't, and she did. And mm -hmm. so they did an investigation into me. Um, about six months later, I, I had the California State Dental Board walk into my office and uh, with a video of me, you know, all the clips from the, all the pharmacies. Oh, they just showed up at your office? Oh, yeah. Yep. While you're working and patients yep. are in there? Yep. yep. So you're just going to work that day, thinking Thanks. everything's fine. Yep. And You've if, got everybody fooled. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And yeah. did you know she had reported you to the dental yeah. board? You, yes, are, you already knew. You already knew there was some kind of investigation when they showed up i knew it was her yeah they don't just randomly find this stuff but before out. they showed up that day you didn't know she had done no that. so they show up and you're like oh shit she oh, yeah. did report me yeah yeah it was a big deal it freaked me out um and they walk in and you know they can you know they're they're armed you know they're like at that point i was you know intimidated they're thinking they're cops but you know they're armed agents and they can come into your office and you you have to talk to them oh the dental board are like cops yeah, yeah they're like they're like dental cops with guns <laughs> with, yes they have holy guns. shit i know right <laughs> uh and so i i met with the guy and he he showed me a couple a list of names and i look at and of course i know what all those names are because i made them all up you know right and he asked me if I knew any of them, and I said, no, I don't, I don't recognize those. Then he pulled out the video. I think he had a computer laptop, showed me the video. And I said, all right, what am I gonna do? Mm -hmm. And they put you into a diversion program. Uh, they've got a good program, to be honest with you. They really try to look out for the dentists and get them help, for sure. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's not a punitive program if you walk the line. Mm -hmm. Going to treatment, which I did, uh, up in Promises up in LA. Um, you know it's expensive right spent you know spent 140 grand or something on on treatment uh which didn't work <laughs> um and then uh if you follow the rules you're good you keep your license yeah. you get a little ding and you're you're fine so you know you're caught yes you invite okay i'll i'll join the i'll i'll do the program yep but at that point, did you kind of like go, okay, I got a problem with this. I really need to look at myself. Or are you just like, I got to get the heat off? I knew I had a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, I knew I had a problem. Uh, even a little bit before that, I knew there was a problem. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't stop. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really want to stop, but I knew there was a problem. Um, so I went up into treatment and <clears throat> it, it went well. I was, you know, I've already been exposed to AA and 12 step mm -hmm. recovery. Uh, programs and so I was receptive to it at the time for sure um, and I had to do it or I would risk losing my license uh, so I went through the treatment program did well um, left there after 90 days and came home maintained the license and practice the only they took my DEA license so I couldn't write prescriptions for controlled substances anymore right which is probably a good thing yeah right? um, and ran my dental practice for a while. Uh, and then let me think about this. Were you going to meetings? Were you doing anything? Or you just go? I got. I'm, I went to treatment. Now I'm good. No, I think that's that's right about when you and I met. Met. I'm thinking, okay. Yeah, I was trying to get sober, 
uh, I was kind of, I was in a, a, their monitoring program where yeah. they piss test you and all that stuff. And I, I was kind of getting loaded again, but mm-hmm. trying to, you know, avoid the tests. And I think I got popped a couple times on a couple of diversion tests. And uh, that's when I, I think I got hooked up with you. And right. Daryl had been watching me throughout this whole process yeah. going, he's, he's, he's going to come around like yeah. he needs us, yeah. you know, but he was patient, mm-hmm. um, helpful for sure. Uh, got me to some meetings, and that's when you and I kind of hooked up right. right around there. And uh, tried for a couple years at that point yeah. to try to get sober, right? And I'd get some time and relapse and get some time, and I was going through a vicious divorce, you know, brutal divorce. Um, there was money stuff. There was stuff with the kids. I had 50%, you know, for a while I had 100% custody of my kids. Mm-hmm. So I was getting divorced. I had 100% legal and physical custody of my kids. And I'll think about, I think about this, <clears throat> at that moment, you know, there was one night when I'm sitting there on the couch with my kids and I'm looking at them and I've got all three of them with me, right? And there was some stuff that happened with their mom and it was kind of a pivotal moment for our family. And I couldn't stop using drugs at that point, you know? Yeah. And I look back on that as a father and going, you know, fuck, those are my children. Yeah who I'm there to protect them and provide for them. And I remember sitting on the couch with them and they're, they're scared of other things that are going on kind of in their lives and they're, they're needing me, needing mm-hmm. their father. And I continued to use drugs. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the addiction part, you know, that's the part in us that's really, yeah. we struggle with. You've got, uh, you look at it everything in the world telling me to not do it. All the reasons you need right there and I kept going. And that's the part that we understand each other that normal people don't understand. It's like, God, I can't tell you how much. I know you love your kids. I love my kids more than anything. Oh. But when I use, I'll put drugs and alcohol in front of my kids yeah. every time. It's amazing. And it's not a choice. It's not a moral issue. Mm-hmm. It's not a character issue. It's a powerlessness issue. Yeah, yeah. You know? I know. I, I, absolutely. And it's, it, it's scary. You know, mm-hmm. it's, Most people would look at it from non-recovery perspective and yeah. go, we'll just stop. Right. Well, I can't, yeah. you know, that's, that's the problem. Yeah. Um, so I, I kept that up for a while and, and took care of the kids and was supporting two households and then just, there was a lot going on in my life, mm-hmm. um, relapsing in and out and, uh, started to date my current wife who I'm married to now. Um, and she was handling all of her personal, we'd lived together and she was handling all of her personal finances. Uh, and I was relapsing again, started mm-hmm. relapse after about 12-ish months of being clean and I didn't want her knowing that I'd relapsed. Right. And she's handling all our money. And uh, I was started buying pills on the street up by one of our offices up in Inglewood. And I ran up a pretty big debt to some crip yeah. on, on uh, Imperial Highway. And uh, he starts threatening me. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to come into your office. I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to kill you, motherfucker. Da da da. And uh, I needed money. Yeah. You know, not tons, but I needed a few thousand bucks, and I didn't want to ask her for it. So I thought it would be a good idea to go rob a bank. Right. And uh, ended up doing that. Ended up robbing, robbing. Uh, ended up robbing seven banks. So let's talk about the first time you robbed a bank, because I, I, want, to, I want to just tell a little bit of story about yeah. this before we go into yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Daryl calls me one day and goes, hey, look up Rolled Sleeve Bandit on the internet. And I look it up, and there's you standing at a teller window with a button-up shirt on with your yep. sleeves rolled up. I'm like, that's Damien. 
Yeah. Holy shit. Clear as day. So the first time you robbed a bank, take me through that story. Oh, man. So you had money in the bank. That yeah, part, had, I, yeah, that part I didn't know. Yeah, we had money. But you were doing it so your, your girl wouldn't find that, out. Yeah. I mean, that was my story. That was my story to myself at the time. Knowing what I know now, there was some other things going on in my right. life. But, um, you know, I think I was robbing banks in a, in a Range Rover and a Mercedes. You right. Know? I mean, literally a $120,000 car, and I'm robbing banks to get 1800 bucks or 3600 That's your bucks. payments current on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got money. I right. Mean, now, there were some fin- I was having some financial struggles sure. due to the divorce and whatnot, but I was working as a dentist managing a large dental right. practice. Like, I was doing fine. You had income. I had income. Mm-hmm. Um, so I the was, first time you rob a bank. The first time I rob a bank, <laughs> I... Uh, got this disguise like this big oversized sweatsuit and like a white visor and like these big gold glasses and and i uh it was in hermosa beach uh i remember pulling up in front of it and I in your range rover in uh, i think i was in my at the time girlfriend's mercedes oh, okay. for this one mercedes. I, I believe All right. um and i had a note <laughs> wrote out a note right you know and um, what the note say uh they were all the same i forgot it, tens 20s you know i googled it looked yeah. at what you're supposed to put on a bank robbing note <laughs> and uh <laughs> sorry i don't mean to laugh <laughs> I mean, google how do you ra- how do you rob a bank what do you put on the note honestly you got to learn about it. you know they got die packs they got yeah. bait bills they got all these things they can use to track you or catch you or right. blow up dial you got to avoid that stuff so you did some research yeah, i'm smart yeah. i'm intelligent got I, know you. I'm, I know what i'm doing yeah you're not gonna get caught no yeah no well funny enough i you know i've thought this through before i robbed the first bank of course and i I figured if I did get caught, not in the act, but afterwards, I would get in front of a jury and I could convince the jury that why would I, I'm a dentist who's making good money, right. driving nice cars, like why would I be robbing banks? They've got the wrong person. Right. That was my whole. That was going to be your, yeah, your defense My case. get out of jail free yeah. shtick, um, <clears throat> which didn't work, by the way. Uh, so at first bank, I put on the disguise, so to speak. And uh, I walked in the door, and it's a smaller bank, kind of quiet. And the second I walk in, the lady sitting at the teller drops her hand over here, and you know they got buttons for the alarm. And I guess she knew by looking at me that I was going to try to rob them. Yeah, it's I mean, gold I, glasses. I yeah. looked, I looked that ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> and that out of place. So I turned around and walked out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, it was a few days later. Uh, first bank I went into, um, walked in, hand them a note. Scared, I was scared to death for sure um handed the teller a note and where was this bank the first one i robbed was manhattan beach i think okay uh you know there's seven of them i get them yeah. a little confused sometimes yeah um it's a lot of banks yeah it is a lot of banks uh handed her a note and i remember she was really sweet she was really nice and mm-hmm. she was uh I, I was very respectful you know i wasn't threatening or being an asshole about it but i did tell her I had a gun, you know, which mm-hmm. is probably a little intimidating. Um, but she was really sweet. And, and, and you really didn't have a gun? No. You just no, had a no. no. I just had a no. Yeah. And uh, no, I did not have a gun. And she uh, gave me some cash and offered me a bag to carry it out with. And I said, no, I'm good. And I grabbed it and I, I walked out. And <clears throat> I, it was such an adrenaline rush. You know, once I got through those doors and got to the car, I, I was kind of like high on it a little bit. Yeah. Um, scared to death for sure, but, right. but high. And this was, I robbed the bank over my lunch break from the dental office. So I, you know, I'm working in the morning as a dentist, go rob yeah. a bank real quick, come back and go back to dentistry. 
what was weird about it is like I could switch into like a different mindset like it never happened you know it's really bizarre compartmentalizing oh man go back into being Mr. Dennis yeah yeah like nothing happened and I did that five times and got away with it over about a two month period of time Um, right there was one bank again in Manhattan Beach uh, in a shopping center strip mall or a a mall uh, parking lot and as I, I robbed the bank I come out jump in the car and as I pull up out of the parking lot, a cop pulls up behind me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he'd been in the parking lot for something unrelated to me. And he ended up, you know, I make a right turn, he follows me, right turn, he follows me. And I thought I was, you know, I thought I was hit for sure. Yeah. And then I'm leaving down Sepulveda and he hits the lights and then pulls into the bank parking lot. You know, he got the call that somebody robbed the bank. And, uh, I got I got off, you know. I, he didn't come after me, but <clears throat> that was the scariest moment where I almost got caught. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it didn't stop me. Yeah, you know, I did two more after that. I think. And do you think you got like addicted to the rush of it, or do you think like, I mean, because you did you owe the guy two grand. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, and that's why you did it the first time. Yeah. It, it, then and I so, bought more pills and I owed him more money. Oh, okay, it, so it, it was like a, a cycle. Yeah, it became a whole. You owe the crypt that was going to shoot up your. Yeah, dental practice, money, and so when you need money, you yeah, and then I go, go back the to bank. the crip that threatened me to buy more pills, and it's a whole cycle. But yeah, yeah there's definitely a rush to it, no question. Um, uh, I wouldn't. I was. It, I like the pills more. Mm-hmm. You know that if the pills were free, I wouldn't be robbing banks. Right. But it was. Um, it was a little bit of a rush, uh, and I got kind of cocky with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up robbing two banks within in one day within like a mile of each other, right? So I robbed one and the cops are going here. I go to the other one and rob that one. Now, mind you, I'm not wearing a disguise robbing any of these banks. Right. I'm literally walking in. I think I had sunglasses on for a little bit, but I'm walking in in like my rainbow sandals and, and shorts and rolled up sleeve shirt, yeah. <clears throat> but no disguise on my face. Um, and I, it shows how just oblivious I was, you know, yeah. clueless, you know, thinking I'm invincible. Nobody's mm-hmm. going to touch me. I'm almost back to that 16 year old kid that yeah. went to Cabo, right? Literally. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, that my ego thought I was, you know, so untouchable that I'm, nothing's going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did, you know, uh, so I robbed those two banks and then, um, uh, the next day I'm in the dental practice and I'm, I, I didn't put it together at the time, but there was like a bunch of cops, uh, you know, across the street in a parking lot from my office that I caught a glimpse of one day or one, one hour that morning. And I didn't know that, but they were there for me. You know, right. <clears throat> they were getting ready to come bust me. And then as we were shutting down the office that night, uh, full tactical team, you know, trucks, SUVs jumping the parking lots, guys coming out, guns, gear, the whole nine. Uh, you know, they wait for all your patients to leave. Most of them, yeah. One of the dentists that was working for us was still there. Uh, my wife, girlfriend at the time, was working there. She was there. Um, one assistant and a patient were there, um, and they got me in the parking lot out front. <clears throat> and to show you, this is how delusional I was. They had me on the ground, and the guy that had me on the ground, I look up and my, you know, I look at his belt, and he's got a Homeland Security badge on his belt, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm laying there looking at his badge, and I'm going, oh, Homeland Security, like they're terrorism. I said, they got the wrong guy, this is a mistake. Yeah. Yet I had just robbed two banks the day before, and I still think like I'm good. Right. That's that, I was that twisted in my thinking. Um, but I didn't get out, you know, they took me to jail that night, and I didn't get out for five years. 
Yeah. Done for five years. Yeah. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> what was that like being in jail that first night? Like, what were you thinking? You didn't have any more pills, right? Uh, uh, what's interesting is that's one of the main things I was concerned about was coming off those pills. I was taking 40 Norcos a day at that point. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. So it, that probably hurt. Yeah, it was vicious. I mean, brutal. Um, and then on top of that, uh, abandoning my kids, my girlfriend, you know, just the blow up of life. Um, and I, I look back on it and... <clears throat> I'm not a suicidal person. I've never mm -hmm. even contemplated suicide. I think that was kind of like my version of suicide in the mm -hmm. sense that my life had gotten so out of control and uh, uncomfortable, right? Challenging with the divorce, the money, and the, the kid. There was just so much going on that I kind of pulled the plug, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so the first night in jail was, was tough, uh, scary, for sure. I mean, I was just in a holding cell by myself. It wasn't intimidating scary. It was just what's going to happen scary right um and i'm coming off pills so i'm kind of just starting to feel bad yeah. and then i'm going to start feeling real bad uh they kept me in santa monica police department first then moved me down to the federal detention center in la for the pre-trial facility and uh that was an eye-opening experience for sure you know i've never spent a moment in handcuffs in my entire life mm -hmm. let alone jail so um, that was your first time ever in jail. First time ever. Yeah, well, I was in jail in Mexico once, but yeah. that's that's overnight. That was just right. teenage drunk stuff. Um, and you come out of the, you know, you go through processing and all that stuff, and they bring you up in the sally port, and, you know, they open the doors, and you're out in the day room. They just put you, you know, go on. And uh, <clears throat> it, to walk into that room and see all those people in there, and uh, it was scary. It was sad. I mean, it was, you know, to go from where I was to where I was at that moment. Was Overnight. Literally, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so coming off the pills, going through the trial stuff, and am I going to fight it? Am I not? I was facing 47 years if, yeah. I, if I fought it. Um, so we just, I agreed to a deal um, and came off, <laughs> coming off the pills in, in jail was horrible. How long did that take for you to feel somewhat three, three weeks three weeks yeah i'd say three weeks till yeah. i started to feel somewhat normal yeah um and yet i've got to make the decisions with my lawyer on on what am i going to do and a deal and yeah it was you know you got to function ish um you know had to deal with samantha you know talking to her which was heartbreaking yeah um, samantha's your wife yes yeah, yeah. is my wife now and um the first phone call to the kids was brutal I mean, just oh, heart-wrenching. Yeah. How old were the kids then? Uh, <clears throat> six, seven, and 12, okay. you know, ish. Uh, six, seven, and 11. Um, and they, you know, this was on the news. This was a big deal. Right. Well, locally, it was a big deal. Everybody, news. everybody around town knew about it here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Yeah. Uh, news, news cameras were at the house, and, you know, they're trying to interview my, my ex-wife and the kids. It was a big thing for the kids. Yeah. Um, and they're young. They're too young to process it. Right. They don't know what's going on. And, uh, you know, they'd been living 50% of the time with me. Mm -hmm. And 50, so it's half, you know, they, it was, it was tough. It was hard for them. Um, and uh, that first phone call was was difficult, and you know I didn't want to cry in jail, right? Yeah. Um, and surprisingly, I didn't for the five years I was gone. I didn't one time. I cried a lot when I came home, right? You know, but uh, 
And so when I got to prison, uh, so let me back yeah. up. Let me back. I got a couple of questions in that yep. first, like while you were in the holding cell, and like mm -hmm. did, did sobriety cross your mind? Did calling Don cross your mind? Did like the guys that you had like kind of dabbled with sobriety, like all the guys you were hanging out with a little bit? Did that cross your mind, or did you start thinking about that? Or absolutely, no yeah. question. Um, <clears throat> I made a decision that moment to never do pills or drink again. Like it was the what that, night, that first night that I was in mm -hmm. Santa Monica, I was a little whacked out of my brain, but by the time I got to the next night at, at LAMDC, Federal Detention Center, I made a commitment to myself to not ever do that again. Yeah. I mean, full on, like, I'm gonna get home to my kids right. and get my shit together, and I'm not gonna drink or use drugs again. Um, was that your sobriety day? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And I thought it would be, you know, I didn't realize there was a lot of drugs in prison. Right. It didn't even pop up on my radar. Yeah. Um, so I figured for the next five years, like, you know, or however long, I didn't know at the time how long I'd be locked up, but I figured I'd be away from them anyways. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but I made a decision to, to not do it uh, at all. And uh, my, Samantha was sending in 12-step, you know, daily reflections and mm -hmm. big book, and I was getting all the literature I could, yeah. and reading and reading and reading and talking to other guys. And, um, as I moved up into the prison system, right, I got into some 12-step stuff there early at the lower security facilities. Um, they'd have some meetings. Um, there was a, a drug program at one of the, one of the prisons that I was at. Um, but I was sober, completely sober the whole time I was locked up. Yeah. And so so going, into, going into jail the first time, not prison, you're into jail, mm -hmm. like, what was that like? You're a dentist, you're a, you know, Intimidating, yeah, for pretty sure. high level achiever. Yep, do some crips because you were buying some pills off of them. But like, what was that like? You walk in there, like, what was? It was scary and super intimidating for sure. Uh, and luckily, I'm a big guy. Uh -huh. You know, um, my brother had done state time, so I kind of knew a little bit about what to do, what not to do. But I didn't understand the level with which. Uh, you've got a, the respect and mm -hmm. staying out of people's way and the racial segregation and the rules and the politics. Prison politics are gnarly. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> at the lower security facilities, it's pretty lax, yeah. right? Um, when I got locked up, I was really angry. I had a lot of anger in me, yeah. um, at myself, yeah. you know? Um, and so I got, I, I got in a lot of fights and I did a lot of kind of dirty shit. And, uh, Moved my way up to a, a maximum security facility in Kentucky um, for getting in fights. Yeah, getting in fights. Yeah, yeah. beating people up. Um, <clears throat> and you weren't that, that wasn't you before, right? Like no. growing up, you you weren't a fighter, not a violent guy. Last fight I was in was high school. Yeah, before you know, hadn't yeah. been in a fight since high school. And you know, what is that? Twenty something years, mm -hmm. no, nothing. Um, <clears throat> when I went to prison. I almost did prison alcoholically in the sense that I, I jumped in with both feet. Mm -hmm. um, and I thrived in prison in a lot of ways, which is really strange. You know, you would think of with my background and whatnot, I'd, I'd have a hard time in there. I think <clears throat> when I got to prison, I kind of was like, I felt like I was home. I had such a low self esteem. My, my value, my perception of myself was so low mm -hmm. that I kind of felt like I was with my people yeah. in a sense. You know, I, like I was faking it out here, mm -hmm. country club and, my, you know, doing this and whatnot. And that's all faking it. I got to prison and I was like, oh, 
like these are my people. These are my guys. Yeah, I'm good here. Yeah. And I was. You know, I prison politics shit and beating up people that shouldn't be on the yards and doing all that stuff. And uh, because I was sober, you know, the cops knew I was sober. I was the guy that was holding everybody's drugs. You know, uh-huh. I, I had stuff around me all the time. Yeah. There was no part of me that ever thought about doing them. Right. You know, I was... I uh, got into the 12-step stuff at the uh, early places. When I got to the maximum security facility, there was no 12-step programs. Mm-hmm. It's just non-existent there. Um, but I had my own stuff. I had the, you know, stuff was still being sent in. And yeah. um, it, it got me through, you know, the big book and daily reflections got me through those five years. I remember years. one time Daryl talked to you or he maybe yeah. wrote you a letter and then you went dark. Yeah, for a period of time. <laughs> what was that about? Like, and then you reach back out, and Daryl's like, "Oh yeah, they had to shut everything down because of, there was." Yeah, I, I there was a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Um, uh, at one point, I was in the shoe for four or five months. You know, a special housing unit, kind of yeah. a prison within a prison, uh, just for some prison politics stuff. And we were long story, but when I got to Big Sandy, Kentucky, which is a level five maximum security federal prison which is very high everybody's lifers and whatnot um number one i was scared to death going out there for sure and it's very violent there's Mm -hmm. a lot of violence there um when i got on the yard there was a uh, black hand from the mexican mafia there from santa ana Mm -hmm. uh, big joe and he heard there was an orange county guy coming out and Mm -hmm. so as soon as i hit the yard boom the you know, the homies pulled me over and I had to go meet with him, meet him. And he took me kind of under his wing a little bit. And he was, he looked out for me. He was super cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had to do all the stuff you got to do. Right. But I don't think I would have made it through that place without him. Yeah. You know? And he knew I was what I was, he knew I was sober and I was trying to get home to my kids. And, you know, he's got life. Yeah. And so he's not going home. So I think vi- he's kind of living vicariously through me. Right. And uh, he supported me in, in staying sober and uh, getting home to my kids. He kept saying, like, I'm going to get you home. Like, you're not getting more time. You know, mm-hmm. cause a lot of guys there will, you know, do stuff that they'll catch more time. Yeah. You know, stabbing people and whatnot. Yeah. <clears> that <throat> was a wild ride, man. Wow. Wow. From yeah. Country Club to Bank Robin to yeah. prison. Yeah. yeah. Done it all. Yeah. So... What was like the last little, like that last six months? Did you know when you were getting out? Mm-hmm. Like how long, how long until you knew your exact date you were getting out? I knew kind of approximately when I was going to get out. They don't tell you just the way they operate. They don't give you a date mm-hmm. until about 90 days out. Um, but I, I started to reach out and set up some networks for coming home. Mm-hmm. Um, reached out to Daryl uh, and um, I think Don maybe while I was towards the end. Um, and Samantha had been visiting me. You know, she's been all over the country seeing me. She, she stuck by you. She stuck by me. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> I'm very blessed. Yeah, she's you amazing. Are. Yeah. She's been unbelievably supportive. Um, she's absolutely incredible, and I'm very blessed to have her in my life. Uh, and yeah, she wrote it out the whole time. Yeah. Um, it, a lot of it's because of my kids. Yeah. She's very close with my kids. Okay. She was at the time. Yeah. She loves them dearly. And if it was just me, she probably would have bounced. Right. It was the kids. Uh, set up networks to come home, and um, I'll never forget, you know, going to the Wednesday night meeting for the first time, coming home. Right. And I walked into that room, and that was my home group before I left. And it was like coming home. I mean, yeah. everybody, where else in the world can you go as a bank robber coming out of prison that you're met with unconditional love and support? Yeah. You know? Welcome home. Yeah. It yeah. was amazing. It was very, uh, like, I got goosebumps mm-hmm. talking about it. Yeah. 
And the men in that room have been so supportive of me coming home and uh, welcoming and non-judgmental mm-hmm. and unconditional. You know, I couldn't do it without them. Yeah. You know? Willard always talks about this, this is the only place in the world where we love you because you're an alcoholic and an addict. Yeah. You know? And it's like so true because it, there is pure love in that room. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And in the program. Yeah. yeah. And my story is, you know, yeah, the circumstances are unique, but the story isn't. You right. Know? It's a dime a dozen. It's, there's so many people yeah. that can relate to yeah. what I've gone through. Yeah, so you get home and then get to your kids right away? Or? Yeah, ish. I came home, didn't have a pot to piss in, no money, no nothing. Right. Uh, Daryl put me up in a sober living that I uh, stayed for free for a little while. Yeah. Samantha and I were kind of just feeling it out. Yeah. You know, she didn't know what she was going to get coming home. Sure. You know, I could have been all blasted up with tattoos and, right. you know, come out like a monster. But um, I held it together pretty good while mm-hmm. I was gone. Uh, and so she and I are kind of figuring our stuff out and um, saw the kids about three weeks-ish after I got home. Um, and that was gnarly. That was very emotional. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to make amends to them immediately, mm-hmm. you know, like minute one. Right. But I didn't want to overwhelm the situation. I just kind of, you know, had to be patient. Um, when I got home... Uh, At that time, they're what? Like, your oldest was what, 16? 16, yep, 16, uh, 12, uh, 13 and 12. Okay. And um, <clears throat> when I got home... So they're old enough at that time to know what had happened. Oh, yeah, they know what what's going up. On. Yeah, 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 they know what's up. Um, and they were, you know, they loved me and they were welcoming, but they were pissed. Sure. Rightfully so. You mm-hmm. know, they were hurt. And uh, I did some really shitty stuff to my kids. Yeah. Um, and I'll spend the rest of my life trying to make that up to them. Um, mm. But when I got home, I, I got into like that control mode again you know I kind of mentally relapsed and I want to make everything happen mm-hmm. I wanted to force the kids I wanted to force the custody I wanted to force this and force that yeah. because in my brain I'm like I got to make up for lost time right and that's where Don really helped me out yeah with spot just kind of slow your roll yeah. like it's not on your time it's a, you know it's up to God like it's yeah. try to force the issue it's not gonna help yeah and I struggled with that for the first year or two after I was home yeah um, uh, you know, I had no no desire to drink or do drugs, but I had a desire to do a lot of fucked up thinking stuff. Right. <laughs> and uh, I went to a lot of meetings, mm-hmm. um, stayed in very close contact with Don, um, Daryl, and a handful of guys when I got home who I stay in touch with, um, and just went to meetings. And yeah. it kept me grounded as best I could, yeah. you know, with what I was coming home to. Right. Um, and uh, <clears throat> slowly things got better, more time with the kids. You know, my focus almost entirely was on those children. Mm-hmm. What do I need to do to get back in their lives in the capacity that I want to be in their lives? Yeah. And in the way I think they need me. Um, and it's taken time and it's been up and it's been down. Um, and I've tried to not get on the roller coaster with it. Um, mm. And again, that's just the 12 step stuff keeps me kind of. Yeah. Steady. So let me ask you about that. Did you work the 12 steps while you were in prison? How do you do that? Or did you kind of just kind of do it and then start over when you got out? Or I did it the whole time <laughs> I was gone. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a gratitude list every day. I made a you know personal commitment to myself that I would do something each day to improve my life and be yeah. a better father when I got home, whether it was... <clears throat> 
you know, at the time working out and, you know, reading, I read a lot of uh, self-education, but yeah, it, you know, gratitude list every morning. Mm -hmm. And it's, listen, it's tough sometimes finding things to put on that list when you're locked in the shoe for four months, yeah. you know, <clears throat> um, <coughs> when I'm, it, when I'm, you know, I, I did a lot of kind of dirty shit in prison mm -hmm. and, um, I didn't feel great about myself for a lot of yeah. times, but I still made that list every yeah. single day. Um, and then the readings, and uh, yeah, I worked. I worked my own program, my own version of it. Right. You know, no sponsor, no meetings. Right. You know, but I had a big book. I had daily reflections. I, twelve and twelve. I had something with yeah. me all the time. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> in the beginning, guys would give me a lot of shit about it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but. I'd, I'd stop that pretty quick and it would they'd see the benefit to it you mm -hmm. know we got a, a lot of white guys in prison are getting loaded mm -hmm. almost every one of them yeah a lot, a lot of them are getting loaded and so if they've got a white guy in their car who's sober well they can capitalize on that in a lot of ways yeah it ended up working out okay yeah yeah got it all right so you get out called on Kind of like that story in the big book when the tornado comes through and the farmer comes out and says, hey, isn't it great the wind quit blowing kind of thing? You want everything to be cleaned up right away. Right away, and immediately. So, so what's that process been like? Oh, um, <clears throat> challenging, yeah. for sure. Yeah, um, I'm uh, kind of a go-getter by nature. I want right. to get shit done. Yeah. And, um, uh, to not have any money is, is foreign for me. That yeah. was a new concept. You know, I grew up in, in Bel Air, California. You know, I lived in shitty, I had all that stuff. Yeah. And to have nothing is, was humbling. Mm -hmm. You know, to come home to Newport Beach with no money, walking around, bumming rides from people. And uh, I worked in a salad factory making pre-made salads you buy in the stores for a mm -hmm. while, you know? And I was stoked to have the job. I was right. very grateful, you know? Um, but it was tough. I wanted to make everything happen on my time. Um, and uh, it took some time for me to kind of trust that God's going to make it work out, um, that the kids are going to come back into my life when it's time. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, me forcing it's more pushing them away than anything else. Yeah. You know, they're teenagers. Sure. I left, they were six, seven, you know, yeah. they're young. And naturally, teenagers are pushing away from their yeah. parents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it took some time. Samantha and I kind of real quickly she realized i didn't come home a monster so we mm -hmm. kind of you know got back together very quickly um <clears throat> and uh it's just it's been a journey you know dawn has been uh my sponsor's been phenomenally helpful mm -hmm. i mean unbelievable um and the guys in the program has just been and i couldn't do it without them yeah you know it's been a journey yeah what would you say your biggest gift of sobriety has been Mm -hmm. this time what would you say is like your most rewarding part of it living honestly in my life every every aspect of my life and everything i do is is honest now um and it has been for some time um i don't have that you know you know how it is you're always looking mm -hmm. over your shoulder making stuff up lies to cover the lies and i don't live that way anymore yeah I, everything i do i speak truthfully i'm honest in every aspect of my life i don't have anything to hide you know yeah. when i first came home back into the community it was a little scary you know because mm. i people i was you know kind of ashamed a little bit yeah. and didn't want to show my face and didn't feel good about what i had done because yeah. i hadn't really processed it all yet um but now that i have like i'm cool with it like yeah. i did what i did yeah. And, and it wasn't the greatest move by any stretch. I mean, it was pretty shitty what I did. Right. Um, 
but I feel good about where I'm at now. Yeah. And it's because I because of the twelve step, you know, program and what I've learned here about being honest, operating with integrity, uh, do what you say you're gonna do. Yeah. You know. Um, that has transferred into all aspects of my life right. and it makes everything so much easier. Doesn't it? I don't have to worry about stuff. Yeah. 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 I mean but there's life things that come up. Yeah. But I'm not getting in the way of stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm not inserting myself in things and yeah. trying to control it. And right. Just let it play out. Once, once, once I kind of finally got to that point where things are going to happen how they're going to happen, and I, I'm not always in this headspace, but no. the, the program keeps <laughs> me in that headspace a lot of the time. Yeah. And I just show up, and like our sponsor says, just show up, tell the truth, and be a service. Yeah. That's his mantra, you know? That's it. And when I live my life in that headspace, Things seem so much easier. And I'm so much more relaxed. Yeah, yeah I know, yeah. I know. And that's the BF service. That's a, I'm glad you said that. That's that's kind of what got me back with my kids was being of service to them, yeah. as opposed to me trying to again force the issue. Yeah. Um, how can I how can I help them? Yeah. And, and I move that into other areas of my life, and I've been successful in other areas that I'm just trying to be of service to people. Yeah. Do the right thing. Take care of people. Yeah. Show up. You're pretty proud of your kids. Tell me about them. My kids are phenomenal uh, yeah. uh, for what they have been through. Um, you know, my son uh, James lives with Samantha and I full time, hundred percent of the time. He has for and how old is he? Years. He's sixteen now. Okay. Yeah, he's been with us for a couple years now, um, <clears throat> and he's, I mean, just unbelievable stud. Golf team, nice. great student, wants to go four year school. Um, got the biggest heart. You yeah. Know, and I look at what he's been through mm -hmm. uh, and with with me and then with my ex and some other things in life uh he's got a good head on his shoulders he's um he's doing great <clears throat> the the girls sophie and chloe are doing wonderful i just had lunch with sophie on valentine's day today nice um she's doing great now she and yeah. i have a great relationship um chloe and i my oldest are in and out a little bit still you know she's yeah. 21 she's um i love her dearly she's kind of mm -hmm. doing her own thing right now we were going to therapy and spending some time together mm -hmm. recently um but it's just been fun to watch them yeah. you know become adults yeah. you know they're getting there and i see my myself and them and their, their little nuanced personality Love characteristics it. yeah it's been a lot of fun that's great okay so final question i ask uh -huh. everybody this what is your message to the person that's out there struggling because you've been there right Ooh, like yeah. what's your message to that guy that may have this whole facade of this life and behind the scenes he's struggling or anybody that's struggling with drugs and alcohol. What's your message to them? Oh gosh, it's, it's gotta be really profound, huh? Um, I think the message is don't, don't give up in the sense that, look what I've overcome and I'm just a person. Like I didn't do any, you know, I, I persevered because I didn't give up and I put my faith in God and kind of the men around me, the people around me, um, there's always light out there somewhere, right? Like it doesn't matter how dark it is and wherever you're at, there's always an opportunity to improve. Um, maybe the next day, maybe a week later, maybe a year later, you've gotta be patient, but don't give up. Yeah. You know, there's too many people, you know, there's a lot of people dying right now, mm -hmm. which is tragic. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't have to be the end point. You know, you can go to jail, you can die, or you can have this amazing life beyond anything you imagine possible for yourself if you just keep pushing, right? Yeah. Just don't give up. Yeah. It's easy to do sometimes. Love it. Ugh. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and being so open and honest about your story, and I appreciate it. I appreciate it. that, yeah. Right, yeah, baby. it's been fun. All Thanks, right, man. Guys. All right. All right.